to another episode of the Black and Empowered podcast with your host, me, Leticia, Brianna, and Mommy is joining us today, Dr. Aisha Metzger. Period. We hope everyone's doing well. We hope you're wearing your mask, washing your hands. Um, today, we're going to provide a little intro on psychoeducation and what that is. And then we're going to interview mommy our very own to continue our conversation on racial stress and trauma but first we're going to do a song association you know we do that first hey guys i'm excited to be back with you today we're going to kick off with our usual song association challenge y'all know this is my favorite part right and i start with brianna pick a word who are you giving the word to you haha <clears throat> <clears throat> let me get my diaphragm ready okay Oh, brother. <laughs> um, ooh, I'm going to give you a good one. Aquarius. Ha. Oh, I got one. Dang, that should have been mine. These are the signs of Aquarius. Aquarius. <laughs> okay. I'll give you that one. Um, it's funny because you really dropped the ball. I thought you was gonna say Capricorn Aquarius. I was, but I don't know uh, all the rest of the signs. <laughs> you don't have to. I only asked you to say Aquarius. Oh, signs by Aquarius or by Beyonce. We could do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was thinking. Oh, well, I was thinking my girl Tanache. That's a fire album. She does have a song called Aquarius. Hmm. Hey, Tanache girl. How we go? Aquarius. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to give my word to Letitia and your voice is warmed up oh I am looking at some flowers right now your word is flower or flowers oh don't they say flowers in that song uh, what that song uh, I see trees don't they say flowers somewhere in there she says red roses too no that don't count. Oh, I'm going to lose this one. I got one. I, I got one. Yeah, I don't have one. What you got, Brianna? This is a song. I can't think of the name of the song, but I know. He said rose and flowers. He probably said flowers. Beyonce said flowers somewhere. but And he was like. I think you think it was. Hold on. From a concrete. He said flower, I think. Oh, who? Ain't that Drake? Yeah, it's Drake, but I even the concrete a flower could grow. Yeah. Ah, right, 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 right. Who knew from a concrete? That I hear the beat too. Right. Oh, is that fireworks? Oh, I hear maybe fireworks. I think it is. I was thinking Bruno Mars. I should have brought you flowers and held your hand. Oh, oh man. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. Um, who who I'm giving it to? Mommy? No. No, sissy. <laughs> hmm. Light. Put your lighters up. That counts. Philadelphia, put your lighters up. New Orleans. Okay. Okay. Period. Period. Yeah. Jamaica. Boom, boom, boom. We can do that, right? <laughs> okay, sign association. Okay, period. Everybody got points. Oh, Tisha, well. Well, I got some, I got, at least I got one song. Usually I don't even think of a song. I just song it wasn't your word. And you... mommy missed it. Cause I got a point last episode. He did. Okay, 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 you coming through. Thank yeah, you. I got a stress the last time. She felt comfortable. Oh, Do I make you nervous? It was cause I was eating chicken nuggets and I was having a good time. You back on chicken? No, they were vegan chicken nuggies. Ah. Uh. Okay, girl. Um, so this week, you know, we're going to give you guys what's going on, our piece of Black excellence. And so today, we're going to highlight my good Spelman sister, Rosalind Brewer. So my good sis, Rosalind, um, recently became the first Black woman to lead um, Walgreens. So she became the first Black woman... CEO of a Fortune 500 for Walgreens. Okay. Um, so she's a trendsetter. My girl Rosalind really be out here. Like she used to do, she used to be the lead, like a CEO for Starbucks, uh, for Sam's Club. So my girl is fired. So okay, moving up. 
her. Shout out to my Spelman sister. We're out here changing the world as we should. Um, but yeah, we can jump right in. Oh, wait, one second. Since you said Spelman sister, y'all, let me add an honorable mention to yeah to our black excellence my niece genevieve this week was chosen to do a black history month presentation for her school and she read so eloquently about the history of spelman college she even oh genevieve is seven and she read the word baccalaureate she sure did tell me what's up you sure did. That has been seen. I passed it along to all of our loved ones, all of our family members, and by her entire elementary school. Shout out to Spelman College again. And the Genevieve Metzger. We love you, Jenny. We love you, Jenny. Oh, and Jenny doesn't know it. She thinks she's just taking a regular test today, but she's getting tested for the gifted program at her. Period. Like... <laughs> Shining star. We love you, Jenny. Woo, woo, woo. Oh, Jenny. Right. Girl, smart cookie. Yeah. So today, like Tisha said, uh, this will be a continued conversation um, about racial stress and trauma. And we'll also interview mommy. So you guys just sit ready, get ready for the ride. We also want to give a quick intro to our listeners on what psychoeducation is so that when we start talking about racial stress and trauma, it is relevant for you as well. So what is psychoeducation, Brianna or Leticia? Um, so psychoeducation is typically the process of like normalizing and providing information for any type of like mental health issue um, or problem a person might be struggling with. I was just going to say, we use it a lot in therapy when we're introducing concepts or really just talking about anything therapy-wise that you may not have already been familiar with. Or, or realizing that like psychoeducation sometimes is just putting labels around things that you're already experiencing. So making sure you have the understanding that like what you're experiencing, there's a concept or there's a name for it. And so just giving you insight into like what it is and how we would basically label it. Letitia and I are child folks, so when we deliver psychoeducation, right, we don't tell our clients, now we're going to provide psychoeducation. What we do is really normalize the process. And I always say, after we do an intake, it's important to say, right, these are the experiences that you say that you've had. So in terms of depression, right, depression doesn't look the same for everyone. So you normalize what a client is experiencing and you provide them the education on what depression looks like in the general population. So you might say 60% of people say that they feel sad. Um, you've, you've mentioned that when you feel sad, you lose interest in things that you used to be interested in. You've mentioned that sometimes you feel it in your tummy or you get headaches. So you just normalize their experiences, but you also provide the education piece, which is to kind of define what depression is in this case, to talk about the incidence or the prevalence of it and what symptoms look like. And then you provide hope, right, for the rest of treatment that says, yes, this is what you might be experiencing. And we have expertise to kind of help you um, deal with those experiences. Well, you know what, mommy? I know an example I use with my clients all the time. We're talking about treatment and like what purpose of treatment is. I usually say something along the lines of like, no, let's say they're coming for anxiety, I would say. So the purpose of treatment isn't to make everything that you feel go away, because you can't do that, but we'll give you the skills that you need to sort of treat your what you're feeling as like a radio. And so you can use your skills in your toolbox to turn the sound down when it gets too loud. So that's how you would change that. Ooh, thing. yeah, I love that. And don't be stealing my line either, because that's <laughs> mine. I use it. <laughs> But right, so if you have a client that says that anxiety for them is like a lot of thoughts rushing in their head, if it's a lot of worries that they have, and I love that. So sometimes those worries can get too loud and they can get in the way of other things that we need to do. So exactly like you said, what we can do in treatment is not to get rid of those worries, right? But to allow you to notice them and to turn down the volume to figure out how realistic those worries might be right and then to learn how to cope with them so i think that's a really great example about how psychoeducation can 
normalize what a client experienced and give them hope for what treatment's going to provide. So now that we've kind of given you guys a background on what psychoeducation can look like in the clinical setting and also kind of what some benefits and goals of psychoeducation are, we're going to jump right into our interview with Dr. Metzger. Um, and so she's going to give us a little psychoeducation on racial stress and trauma. So we've been talking about that in a couple of our episodes, so we're going to continue that conversation with her. So for our listeners, what is racial stress and trauma? So what I usually do when I am giving psychoeducation on racial stress and trauma is to provide prevalence or incidence and then to, like we said, normalize that experience. So racial stressors are dangerous or frightening race-based experiences that can overwhelm your coping capacity or really impact your quality of life or the interactions with you, that you're having with other people. So these um, negative racial encounters that we call racial stressors, they tend to cause fear, they can cause hopelessness or helplessness or horror, um, they can cause anger, right? So if you're experiencing some of these encounters, it's important to know that, again, your reactions to these, so an angry response, for example, is perfectly normal in response. Um, in terms of normalizing the experience, we know as of uh, very recent data that emerged in 2020 that Black adults and youth as young as eight are going to say that they experience an average of five daily experiences with racial stressors. So if you have a client who comes in and they say that they're experiencing a racial stressor, if you're not a client, if you're just someone walking around in your community, it's likely that, um, according to recent research, these individuals are experiencing, like I said, up to five daily experiences. Um, and these are 90% of people who are gonna say that they experience at least one racial stressor every week. So that can be um, due to an individual experience. Um, that can be something that's ongoing and collective. That can be, again, something that you directly experience, or it can be vicarious. It could be something that you witness. Um, so it, these racial stressors are common. They're every day occurrences for some people. Um, and they do, like I said, tend to overwhelm or lead to some sort of harmful thought or feeling, or in some cases, a harmful or uh, potentially negative behavior as well. Okay, so could you give us some examples of what the types of racism are? Yeah, so in the literature, um, there are four main types of racism, and we could talk a little bit more about um, what each of those look like and provide some examples of that. But um, they are internalized racism, interpersonal racism, institutional racism, as well as structural or systemic racism. So internalized racism are really private beliefs and biases that people hold about race and they lie within individuals. So that's why we call it internalized. So that's something like having a prejudiced belief towards other people, having negative beliefs about yourself, um, or even internalizing privilege can be seen as internalized racism. Interpersonal racism are those that, if you hear the word personal, so those are personally mediated. So that um, is racism that occurs between people. So that's bias that, um, might come out in public or sometimes even private interaction. So that's like if you are walking down the street and someone locks their car door, right? They're assuming that you're dangerous or someone making directly making a racial slur towards you. Or again, you observing that sort of interaction either in your everyday life or on social media. Institutional racism is racism that occurs within institutions and systems of power. So that looks like unfair policies, discriminatory practices um, of institutions that can routinely produce racially inequitable outcomes for black people or people of color. So this is like unfair discipline in schools. These are like dress codes in workplaces that can be racially motivated, right? So if you start seeing uh, dress codes um, at restaurants that talk about, right, slides and different types of hair that you can wear. Usually it's that they're trying to keep a certain um, type or race or culture out of their establishment. So that's an example of institutional racism. And then structural racism is the interplay of institutions, right? So it is racial biases that occur 
among institutions and across society. So that um, you start to see the compounding effect through things like our criminal justice system, right? Things like defects and social services, uh, as well as medical practices that, again, um, can systematically uh, privilege white people and disadvantage black people or other people of color. So from those types of racism, um, I can say like for me, I've experienced pretty much probably all of those. Um, so for those, I know you mentioned interpersonal racism. Um, so can you give us a definition of like what a microaggression is and just an example for those who don't Right. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I know that it's tough to say, right? Like, yes, I've experienced each and every one of these instances of racial discrimination or a racial stressor. Um, and like we said, right, that could become a lot. That can become overwhelming, especially if you're experiencing them frequently. Um, in terms of microaggressions, those are, I would say, some of the most common forms of interpersonal um, racism. So these are verbal or behavioral um, kind of ambiguous lights that might occur. They're often automatic. They could be unintentional, but they do communicate either hostile, derogatory, or negative viewpoints about um, culturally marginalized groups. In this case, we're, we're talking about Black folks, right? So microaggressions are the ones that um, kind of invalidate our identity, kind of demean us as Black folks. And again, we know that just like there are different types of racism, there are different types of microaggressions. So microassaults, I think, are the most common. So those are like old-fashioned racism. So those are like deliberate or conscious um, kind of uh, assaults or um, verbal expressions, really, that are discriminatory and that really hurt the recipient of those messages. So those are questions like, how'd you get this job? Or jokingly telling a racist joke that actually assaults a person's um, identity, it assaults their achievements, um, and it really questions um, or it leads the person to question, right? So why are you asking that question? What are you trying to say that I didn't qualify for this job or, right, what's funny about my race um, in the case of a racist joke? So those are, those are micro assaults. Um, micro insults are, um, they're often the rude remarks those are the ones that can demean someone's identity or heritage, um, but they're sometimes disguised as compliments, right? Even though they are micro insults, those are the ones that are like, you speak for, so well for a Black person, or you're so smart for a Black person, um, or where are you really from, right? So to say I speak well for a Black person, where are you saying that Black people aren't well-spoken? To say where am I really from is to say what, that I don't belong here? Or that I shouldn't be from here? Leticia, you're having a thought? Yes, I was thinking the opposite of that, one that's happened, that happens to me frequently, I guess, because we're in academia, the fact that I'm, well, allegedly sound very country. I don't <laughs> think I do. And I, I guess I wouldn't, I don't know if it's because I don't really code switch, but I think it's because I'm more like country and don't really change that in academic settings. And I like make jokes and do all that being labeled as unprofessional or not taking things seriously or not being taken seriously by others. Um, I think that would be like the opposite of that. Yeah, certainly if someone commented on it, I would say that that could qualify as a micro-insult. But otherwise, right, um, the ways that they interact with you could certainly be um, instances of interpersonal racism. Um, and we know that that goes on in academia, especially as we become fewer and fewer. Um, so yes, that's, a I would say, a very relevant and good example. And then... Um, Micro-invalidations are the last form of microaggressions that I'll talk about. So those are um, ones that kind of negate or ignore someone's individual identity, someone's thoughts, someone's feelings, someone's voice. Um, these are things like <laughs> that I've heard, right, happen to you guys. Somebody, people switching your names up, right? 
call him Brianna Leticia and Leticia Brianna or calling you the last black person who was in the program, right? So those are micro invalidations that really invalidate your identity and can take away, right, your contributions to um, the program, to your community that can diminish or otherwise ignore your contributions to, we can even say society at large, right, in terms of invalidating the contributions or the experiences of Black folks. And I even think about along those same lines of instances for me where, like, people misspell my name. I have a friend who a black woman in academia and her department has just went and just called her a completely different name like she's made it very clear what her name is and in emails they'll call her a completely different name because they'll say like well we don't recognize that as like a name basically we'll call you what we feel like well we want to call you we'll label you ourselves that's right. such an invalidation if i tell you what my name is and you don't bother you they even try right Indeed. And we can think about, right, how these um, experiences cause us to kind of question ourselves, to question um, our position in the environments that we're in, to question our ability to speak up for ourselves. Like, right, should I correct them? Should I fight this? If I do fight it, am I now seen as being argumentative? Is this going to somehow become punitive, even if it's not, is it, you know, some way that these people in power can somehow retaliate against me? These are all things that we struggle with when we are faced with microaggressions, definitely, but certainly all of these different encounters with racial stressors. Just to normalize for people who might, might be listening, I feel like recognizing those things, particularly in academia, or like if you're just like in a work setting, come with like a lot of layers of different things. So I know like for me, I'm usually the one who calls things out and gets things started. But a lot of times it can have the possibility of being harmful for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on the other side, I'm like, well, if I don't do it, who's gonna do it? And I always think about people who will come behind me. So then you think about having to be the one to do things which isn't there in and of itself. And then you think about how upsetting it is that you're being treated that way. Then you think about how you're (laughs) gonna be treated in retaliation. Um, And then it makes you feel like your work isn't enough and stuff. So I feel like a lot of things are layered onto that, that people don't- That's exhausting, right? And then you're you're describing a process that's happening where you're supposed to be taking class and seeing clients and right furthering your training. But now you're having to think about, okay, how do I talk to these people? How do I react? How do I defend myself? You're on guard, right? That's a lot that you just described. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of Black students feel that way. And I feel that it'd be nice to normalize the fact that that happens. And I also feel like no matter which decision you choose, it's not the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like for you, if it's safer and it gives you more peace to just mind your business and keep going and ignore them, then that's fine. I don't feel like any one choice is right or wrong. I just feel like it depends on what your path is and what works best for you. Even between me and Brie, I just feel like our paths are different and like that's fine. But I feel like sometimes if you don't have people to tell you that there isn't one right or one wrong way to do things, you might feel like you're doing it. Wrong, right? Right. And that's what leads to rumination, right? Should I have spoken up? Should I have said something? Am I crazy? Did she mean what she said? Did she mean what I think she said she meant? Right? Um, Especially when it comes to defending yourself, right? People can try to talk their way out of it. They could try to convince you that you're perceiving things wrong. There's a lot that goes into kind of thinking about how how to navigate racial stressors. When and you just talked about psychoeducation, right? So part of that is just normalizing the experience and being able to label it and saying, "No, you're not crazy. That was a micro invalidation." Right? Another part of that is in saying, "No, you're not crazy and however you responded." And figuring out one, what the client or what your response was, but two, I think the normalization process is really important to know, right? Like, no, I'm not crazy. This is a product of me navigating in a racist society or me navigating this microaggression. Um, So thinking about how people just respond to stressors in general. That is to say, everyone knows fight, flight, or freeze, right? 
what does that look like in response to a racial stressor? Fight means I'm mad, right? Fight means I have an angry outburst. Fight means I'm defensive. Fight means like, what did you, what did you mean by that? Why would you say that? Well, who do you think you're talking to, right? So fight in response to a racial stressor behaviorally can look quote unquote aggressive, right? It can look like non-compliant. So normalizing that for a client, I think is an important first step. Realizing that in a stressful situation, sure, you could fight, but like you guys are saying, if I'm in academia or if I'm in a professional setting, maybe my body already knows, right, that I have to be professional. So I chose to freeze. My body chose to freeze, right? So I'm met with a microaggression or a racist slight and I'm stuck. I'm shook. Like, what? I have a delayed reaction. I'm, you know, I'm feeling crazy in the situation. I'm not really necessarily questioning what they meant by it. This is something that can make people later feel like, oh, I'm not quick enough on my feet. Oh, I'm not well-spoken enough. Oh, I should have known how to defend myself. But I think in instances when those happen, it's really important also to, to normalize those experiences to say, well, listen, baby girl, you couldn't fight. You can't fight everybody. So maybe in this, <laughs> in this instance, your body was just being protective and you chose to freeze. Right. And now you can go back and unplug and process and talk to who you need to talk to to kind of work your way through this very real and very negative racial stressor. So certainly we can fight. Sometimes we freeze or we can flight. Right. This is like I'm getting out of here. I'm not talking to y'all white folks. Y'all know how to talk to me. I'm going to start avoiding my classmates, my peers, my teachers. I'm withdrawing from conversations because right. It's either that or I'm fighting y'all every time y'all open your mouth and say something crazy, or I'm stuck in these situations where I'm, I'm not responding when I feel like I should. So I think normalizing either the fight, the flight, or the freeze responses is really important to do so that clients or so that we ourselves know you're not crazy. This is how your body reacts to these, these stressors, and in this case, these racial stressors. Yeah, and I think that was my experience for me transitioning like from a HBCU living in Atlanta my whole life to a PWI I think that was something that I did like freezing was definitely my thing or like I have a delayed reaction to things mm -hmm. and so like when racial stressors would come up or like things would happen I have a delayed reaction because it's also me trying to process like did this really just happen like am I sitting here with witnessing this actual thing that I'm reading about and that we write about in our papers actually happening to me in a space that's like oh let's talk about the research let's do all of these things but the same things that we're researching you're doing to us and so for me it was trying to figure out how to process being in these experiences and also moving a little quicker like in that process and picking which option and which choice was best for me to handle situations and knowing that ultimately whichever choice I made, I was supported. And I think that's also important is making sure that like, whatever you do, you have a support system behind you, whether it be your mentor or your friends, somebody there to support you and validate the choice mm -hmm. that you make. Because sometimes you can feel like that choice may not have been the best for you, but sometimes you need people to say, you did what you needed to do for you. And I think that's what makes us a good pair because your reaction is usually delayed and I'm always like, you gonna fight? Like now we throw chairs. <laughs> and so I don't know, I've always liked that about us as a parent because I usually catch it a little bit before you do. And I'm I like, like oh. about y'all too. <laughs> and I think that right. So a part of so we're clinicians, and we're always going to talk about science. But I think that we use our skills on ourselves, right? So thinking about our immediate reaction being to, in Brianna's case, maybe freeze. So what she said she had to work on was then, okay, how do I come with retorts that I can use quicker in the moment? How can I respond if necessary? Or how can I unplug from the situation so that I can take the time to process and then come back with what I think is an appropriate reaction? For Letitia as well, right? So you popping off, you throwing chairs, you ready to fight. So what we have had to do is to say, okay, how can we, again, take a step back once you recognize, right, this is my reaction. Now y'all come to me and you say, okay, I'm ready to fight. What do we do? Who do we send letters to? Who do we call? Who do we, right? Who do we talk to? How can we make this fight 
one, that is validating of our experience, but two, leads to change, and three, doesn't leave me out of this program, right? So we think about maladaptive outcomes that can be a result of racial stressors. If I walk around fighting everybody and everything, I'm going to end up out this program. So how can I navigate those racial structures, dismantle the racism, and at the same time, make it through this program? Like, I'm tired, right? It's a lot. Um, <laughs> but that's why we're all here together. And I think that that's why we uh, utilize, right, these various coping skills, why we utilize each other, why we utilize taking some deep breaths in the moment, why we utilize stepping away from the moment, right, so that we can uh, really take the time to think about how to accomplish all three of those things, protecting ourselves, dismantling racism, and still thriving and succeeding in the environments that we go into. Okay, mommy, so you're talking about all these reactions that we have, so whether it's emotionally, psychologically, behavioral mm -hmm. reactions, how would you say for people listening that these map on to PTSD? So if we're thinking about racial trauma, mm -hmm. an actual recognized form of trauma, mm -hmm. how would you relate the two? And PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, just in right. So I like to think of them as parallel processes. So as interpersonal stressors are to PTSD, so is racial stressors to racial trauma. So we already know that if someone is physically abused, right, they're going to be on guard. They're going to have negative reactions and emotions. They're going to avoid situations that remind them of that stressor. And that's where we start to see the post-traumatic reactions. Um, the same goes for racial stressors. So we do know that racial stressors can, if um, not intervened upon, if not coped with, if not otherwise healed, lead to racial trauma. And racial trauma looks very much like PTSD in terms of the categories that we're familiar with being re-experiencing. So if we're re-experiencing our racial stressors, that can be like having recurrent distressing memories, thinking back to the time when X, Y, and Z happened or really um, reporting those stressors or those racial stressors in higher numbers. Um, so re-experiencing is one, arousal and reactivity. So that's like, um, in terms of PTSD, hypervigilance. So that's being easily startled or on guard, being on the lookout for racism, right? So that's having a exaggerated startle response. If you guys can see me, I just kind of flinch, I'm imagining someone coming to touch my hair, Lord God, right? But that, that arousal <laughs> and reactivity is one that um, is an experience that um, is very similar. So if someone is physically abused and you reach towards them, you might see them flinch, right? So that's to say, if I'm used to these racial stressors and someone's reaching for me, I <laughs> we're laughing, but I might actually flinch in terms of arousal and reactivity. Also, we know that there are negative emotions that are attached to these racial stressors and they can come up and influence and interact and, and negatively impact our days and our lives. So those are things like reduced interest, detachment. I'm not, like I said, interacting with these white people anymore. I'm not going back to this place where I had this negative racial encounter. That could be like loss of pleasure and constrained effort. Like you guys might not want to go to class anymore, right? So these negative emotions can lead to avoidance. When I just said not wanting to go to class, right? So these are avoiding those situations. <laughs> Leticia's making a face at me. <laughs> these are avoiding those situations that are negative racial stressors. And these can happen and it does look like PTSD in these cases, but we know that they are directly linked to the racial stressors. So like I said, most people like us, right, we have our support systems. We have people who help us heal from our racial stressors to where they don't become racial trauma. But for some people, they might need um, clinical support. They might need the help of a mental health practitioner or professional to help them work through kind of these different, we, I'm putting up air quotes here, sy symptom clusters, right? So someone might say, listen, I'm struggling with re-experiencing and negative emotions and avoidance, right? Um, and in that case, they might need some clinical interventions around that. For me, because me and Keisha have had similar experiences and a lot of our experiences have also happened together. Um, and so for me, when we've had experiences either it being called by the wrong name or um, getting kicked out of an establishment 
when those things have happened to us, I think we all process and we like handle things differently. And so for me, coping with establishment, what had happened? Oh, so let me tell y'all the story. Ooh, I what is even the name of that maybe raggedy? Not, maybe not the establishment, yeah. but what had happened? Why not? Uh, I know the name of the establishment. I don't forgot the name of it. That's how, yeah. Basically, me and Tisha were there. It was like a early afternoon vibe. We wanted to do some work, get a change of scenery. Went in there and... Before, before pandemic. This is pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. Pandemic. This is when life was good and everything was fine. Um, so we're in there enjoying ourselves, um, having a good little time. And so we decided to move from the back because it was like really crowded in there. So we decided to move from what we were to the front. Um, and when we moved to the front of the establishment, um, the bartender came up to us and they have a sign that says like no outside food or drinks. So I had a Chick-fil-A cup, but it wasn't nothing in the cup. And so he was like, oh, do you mind throwing this away? I was like, sure, whatever, fine. Because you have a sign on the door, it's, it's whatever. So one of my friends, Quentin, y'all probably hear me. Hey, Quentin. Hey, Quentin. Um, <laughs> he called me um, on FaceTime. And mind you, me and Tisha are sitting in a booth across from each other. And so not even five seconds into my phone call um the bartender comes up to me and is like can you get off the phone and so I'm like for what and he was like I can hear your conversation over there mind you he's behind the bar at least maybe 20 feet from me he's just sitting in front of me and can't even he didn't even know I was on the phone and so he's like oh well you either need to use headphones um, or get off the phone. And I was like, don't worry about it. We'll just leave. Like, you're not going to make me use headphones in a, in a bar. It's a bar. Where everyone is loud, right? Everybody's loud. People are screaming. People are yelling. You got the TV on. I feel oh. like we should provide. So it's it's during the day. It's a, it's a coffee shop that is also a bar because it serves alcohol. So some people are in there working. And some people are drinking. So it's just loud. Because, you know, people drinking, having a good time. But what he said don't make no sense, basically. <laughs> so we leave, and at that point, I'm processing the fact that this is even going on. As we're walking down the street trying to figure out what we're about to do with our stuff, I realize I leave my scarf in there. So now we have a reason to go back and set establishment. So now we go in there, and one of the other bartenders, this woman, decides that she wants to say something to us about how we were acting you guys were acting a certain type of way i guess we should also provide because this is what i'm talking about when we me and brie react differently so as soon as the man approached the table talking about the phone brie's speaking calmly i've already started yelling and <laughs> i've already told the girl behind the bar to shut the fuck up like i've already started yelling and cursing yeah, I, she, mommy didn't know that i'm screaming i told him this shit was racist she looked at me i said what the fuck are you looking at like we I'm screaming. So after we leave and come back the second time, that's what she was referring to as me yelling, my reaction. And so at that point now, I'm annoyed because you need to stay in your lane because there's nobody talking to you in the first place. But two, it's also just like, what's the issue? Like y'all are the ones in the wrong here and y'all now it's an issue. So now we going back and forth with the man and the woman, like me and Taylor. <laughs> With both of them. And so everybody in there is looking at us like, what? And so then he decides to do what, what white people love to do. Um, and we've even seen it on the news where they, oh, I'm going to call the cops. So instantly. I, mean, I was terrified. We was like, we was like, okay, we need to go. Like, yeah, like I don't, if that's never happened to you, that's really scary. Yeah, like, because it's also realizing it was making the decision between do we stay here and keep going back and forth with people or do we sacrifice our lives at this point? Like at that point it was and that one might lead to the other. Right. So realizing that if we stay in here, you're gonna call a cop that you probably have on retainer because you own a bar. And so now the cop is gonna come in and wanna defuse the situation and now it becomes a whole it just it just didn't wasn't gonna end well we realized like it, it really dawned on us where we were for a second because sometimes in our department, it can feel like everything is good. And so it was in that moment that we realized that 
this is the reality of where we are. Like we're not, just because we're graduate students getting a PhD doesn't mean that we're absolved from what's happening yeah. outside of us, outside of that environment. And so it was a reality check definitely um, to remember like, hey, y'all still black, y'all still live in a predominantly white and racist area. So don't forget where you are just because the people in your department are white and they're nice and you have good relationships. Like, don't, don't forget that this is still America and this is the America that we live in. Hmm. I think something, because I was thinking about the layering of how your reaction is. So I think, again, to provide like norm, normalizing it for me, I had a lot of feelings like, I don't mind yelling at Chris on behalf of somebody else. I'm turning up every time because that's just how I am. But I just feel like for me, after it was all said and done, I cried duh, because that shit, it just hurts. But also like I thought about how nobody else in the bar said anything on their behalf. Mm. And that hurt me a lot because I think it's just also the lens with which I see things. That's very important to me, like speaking up and helping other people. And so it was very hurtful to me that other people didn't see say anything. And also because I see kids in like community work is important to me. I was upset and I was almost upset at myself because then I was like, what if someone recorded that and my kiddos saw me or what if like they were walking by and they saw me like, how do I explain that? And I think that's an example of how they can make you feel like it's your fault, <laughs> like you're wrong. And I think, I don't know. I think that's just something to be aware of because if my, if any of like my kiddo clients have seen that, I think I would have been fine with having a conversation with them about that because how I reacted was warranted and there was nothing wrong with that. But I think in the moment, it can make you feel like you're the one in the wrong, like like you're bad for doing that. And I don't know, it's just a lot of layering. And so I think it's important to think because these right. instances happen to us all the time and it's not just one single reaction. So it's not just being upset. It's not just being angry. It's a lot of things on top of each other. I don't know. And I just think it's important to consider that. Yeah, and to know that, right, all of your reactions are warranted. All of your reactions are right. All of your reactions are fair and normal and I think coming back down and being able to process right like oh my goodness I was so angry in the mo in the moment and this is why I reacted in the way that I did right because of how I was being treated but also because I would help someone and no one's helping me and my sister's here with me and we got to protect each other and how can I respond and everything's happening so quickly and maybe I got to step away but now I can come back and even after you guys had to do some thinking about right like what can we do on the policy level? Who can we talk to? Y'all went back to the department and told them what happened, right? So there's so many, there's so much that goes into just normalizing what happened, defining what happened, but then, okay, I still exist in this world. How can I react to that, right? What can I do? How can I make it better for me, for my sister, for other people in the program, in the community, for, right? We always go back to society at large and um, that, for me is a lot, right? Like that can become potentially overwhelming. So one bite at a time, we think about, okay, this is what I experienced. This is how I can normalize that reaction. This is how I can process and move forward. And we keep pushing, right? Um, and I think it's important to know that, or to note that you guys have kept pushing in a very real way. You guys have kept pushing by saying, I'm gonna keep well, when Corona hadn't happened, right? I'm going to keep doing my work and doing it in public and standing up for myself. And I'm going to go back to the department and talk about what happened. I'm going to make, you guys were on social media. Y'all had everybody turned up and ready to go to that place. I don't know the name now, but at the time we all did, right? And continuing, let me say how Brianna likes it, and, right? <laughs> continuing, <laughs> continuing the work that you guys are doing in the program with your clients who are dealing with racial stressors, continuing the research that you're con conducting to figure out the impact and how to cope with these racial stressors. So that's really important too. And I just want to give you guys kudos and props for um, being able to handle and navigate that situation and keep pushing forward in all the work that you're doing. It's hard, man. Really, it's hard. Um, basically, like, have conversations about it and charge people to do better. So we're not sitting here acting as if things aren't happening. We're gonna acknowledge them. We're gonna call for action. We're gonna write to newspapers. We're gonna talk about the experiences and the things that are happening because if we don't, 
some some nobody will, you know, or or somebody will, or it'll get pushed under the rug. And so it's a constant struggle. It's a constant fight. And sometimes we do get tired and we don't want to fight anymore. And that's perfectly fine to not feel like you want to fight anymore. Mm-hmm. For me personally, it's realizing that other people are coming behind me and other people are looking up to me. And so I want to create a space for them where they feel like, damn, it's safe here. Like, wow, somebody actually took the time out to protect this space for me or cultivate a space that's safe for me. So figuring out how you want to handle these things is definitely a personal journey and acknowledging that whatever way you choose to handle it, it's fine and it's normal and it's your journey and it's the way that you want to handle it. Nobody should tell you what's right or wrong about that. I feel like thinking about like what both of us want to do, we both found, I think specifically like this year, we both found good outlets for you. I've seen how your research questions have developed and mm-hmm. like wow. getting more connected with like, um, just in case this is anybody's listening new. So Bree wants to be like an academic and a professor and work at Spelman. And so the way that, and the way that your research questions have developed for black women lately, I've noticed have developed in a really nice way. And I think it's been a really good outlet for you. And then finding like connecting with Rosalind, hey girl. And then like finding people who are a good outlet for what you want to do. I've noticed that we've both done that this year. So me, Julie, hey, Julie girl. And then for me, community work is really important for me. So getting to get my hands dirty and make changes in our clinic and reach out to community members that we wouldn't normally do. So I feel like for both of us, I think we've been a little more fulfilled this year in response to like everything that we experienced last year. And so it's been really nice to see. And I think it makes, I don't know for you, Brie, but for me, it makes me feel better a little bit. Like I feel like it's been part of healing maybe. Yeah. So I think it's like being able to find how you can channel those things because last year I felt very stagnant and then Julie popped up and now I have somebody who can help me do the thing. Mommy as well, but Julie is within the clinic. And so being able to be fulfilled in those avenues and do the work that we really want to do is really nice. So it's been a nice turnaround into, you know, the response of like everything that happened last year. Y'all better use y'all privilege for better. Right, so I think a part of that is is one like you guys being privileged to have each other because, who certainly you could be the only one in your program. So having each other to kind of cope with and process afterwards, and certainly having the the freedom and the training opportunities to, like you're saying, expand your research and expand your clinical work and your impact. I definitely agree because I think. I am a very avid believer in like research being researched. And so everything that I do has a personal connection to me. And so this is just another way that I'm continuing to use my experience to inform the work that I'm doing and realizing that I know this isn't my only experience. Um, And so being able to also create spaces and voices for other people who are having these experiences. And so I do think it's definitely been inspiring, but also been like, that that little moment where it's like okay oh I feel like I'm doing something good in the world like I feel like it's almost like joy and I really be hesitant to say it (laughs) I really be hesitant to say that about academia and grad school but boy let me tell you I didn't have me a good time this year it's really nice It's, it's being able to say like even if this space just impacts one person I know that I've done something and so being able to say like with my research and the work that I'm doing and the work that you're doing in the clinic, Tisha, like we're impacting people's lives and being able to see that impact and seeing people say like, I genuinely feel heard. I genuinely feel understood. I feel like somebody gets it. Somebody is there rooting for me in the background. And so I think that's what, what it ultimately ends up being is like you go through all of this tumultuous stuff and then you end up being inspired by unfortunate like it's unfortunate that it has to be like so Mm -hmm. bad on you to end up being a positive but i think we've been able to turn such negative experiences into positives um and just using them just like change making and that's ultimately always something i write about is being a change maker and so i think that's what we're doing but also 
remember that every path is the right one so you don't have to be the change maker everybody doesn't have to lead stuff because i like doing it i still be tired and i still be crying know that no tears are never going to go away okay so if that's not your avenue then that's fine too because can't have no change makers if they don't have people to support them and you can't leave nobody if you don't have nobody to follow you okay so just know that whatever avenue you decide is a good one too this is just what worked out for us and that if you decide that you're going to be a change maker right you can do it in different ways you just talked about research you talked about clinical work people could be the change makers through child care right people out in the streets they marching who's at home feeding the babies who's at home watching the babies like that is a very important role as well so one of the things that i uh, encourage students to do you guys come to me for these passion purpose uh, mentoring sessions passion purpose power mentoring sessions um and we really always just talk about like what are your strengths and what can you contribute what are you passionate about right so the teacher just talked about joy boy i tell you first year we were searching for that right what do you want to do how can we make what you're doing feel impactful and meaningful to you and i think that that's really important to think about in terms of how we can all use our own individual strengths and talents towards um, in this case, eradicating racism, right, or certainly eradicating the impact and, and um, encouraging empowerment and thriving despite racism while it does still exist. Okay, so we've been talking about the stuff that we've been doing. What you've been over there doing, mommy? What you working on that excites you? <laughs> you know, I'm just, you know, glowing and growing, trying to thrive and fall. Um... <laughs> Truly, though, I have been, I think, like you guys, recently invigorated by the work that I've been doing. So um, my work right now, like Leticia said, I'm not in the clinic anymore. Praise God. I got free from supervision for right now in that uh, I've been privileged enough to kind of focus my uh, my areas of concentration onto my research. So my research, I describe it as having three different pillars. So I conduct basic science. Um, which is quantitative research, which is giving out surveys on college campuses, giving out surveys to emerging adults, really to understand the within group differences. So I tell people all the time, I'm only concerned with black folks and black kids. Uh, So looking at within group differences, in this case, in culturally relevant risk and protective factors. So we talked a whole bunch about racial stress and racial trauma. That is the risk factor that I'm most interested in. But as we're saying that the ultimate goal is healing and coping and thriving despite those instances, I'm also really interested in racial socialization as a protective factor. We'll talk about that in future episodes, but I have conducted quite a few studies and published quite a few papers, and I'm excited to keep that work going. You guys are helping me collect that data right now in what we're calling the EARTIS study, so the Interpersonal and Racial Stress and Trauma Study. So that is very exciting for me, just thinking about the impact that we're going to be able to have on the field in terms of talking about the impact of racial stress and trauma on Black youth development and talking about the ways that racial socialization can improve their racial identity, their resilience, their emotion regulation, and really their ability to cope with these discriminatory experiences. So that's really exciting to me. Brianna, you're working with me on the second pillar of my research. So that's really research that looks at evaluating facilitators and barriers to community-based services. So we know that, right, like I said, um, most people heal from these racial stressors with the help of their family, friends, and communities. But some people do actually need to engage in mental health treatment. So the work that we're doing is looking at children's advocacy centers, looking at these community-based organizations. and We conducted key informant interviews and a chart review. So this is mixed message data as well. Um, And we we talked to caregivers of referred youth to figure out what it was about the services that allowed them to either access services or kept them from being able to access services. So barriers like hours of operation that Leticia's seeing, right, can keep clients out of the clinic. These parents are telling us that if your clinic isn't on the bus line, or if you aren't offering telehealth services, or if I don't know your relationship between defects and the police, then maybe that's a barrier to me engaging in those services. So I'm really excited about um, that qualitative research and getting out into the field, different things that we can do as community-based organizations to facilitate referrals, to facilitate client engagement and utilization of services. 
And then lastly, just very briefly, what I'm excited about is the treatment adaptations that we've all been working on. So that is um, in making CFCBT culturally relevant for um, Black youth. So I got funding from Yale. I got funding from NIH and the T32 that I was on in order to develop a racial socialization adaptation to the evidence-based um, kind of gold standard treatment for interpersonal trauma. And we talked earlier about the connection or the, the parallel between interpersonal trauma and potentially racial trauma. So really, um, this part of my research is in making sure that as kids are coming in for interpersonal trauma or interpersonal stressors, that we're also, if they're Black, talking to them about racial stressors that they're experiencing and making sure that they're able to navigate those stressors. And I just said the word navigate, so I'm going to stop right here on this very last project. So you guys uh, know that we got funding from SAMHSA to to provide navigation services for trauma-exposed individuals to make sure that they have access to community resources, to public health information about trauma experiences, and about the connection between those traumatic experiences and potentially maladaptive outcomes um, and behaviors like alcohol and substance misuse and HIV risk. So those are the, I just said a whole bunch, the main areas of my research that are exciting to me now. And hopefully, like you guys are saying, we'll be able to really take this research to impact the Black community. And you guys will hear in future episodes where we talk about our racial trauma care package, where we talk about our racial trauma guide and some resources that we have in a neighborhood that we're building for Black youth to work through in terms of navigating and dealing with their racial stressors. So I'll stop there um, as kind of a teaser for later episodes. Thank you, Mommy, for sharing all of the wonderful things that we've been doing. I think this was a, oh, I like this episode. It was cute. It was a moment. She was cute. Um, <laughs> she was informative. Yeah, so we usually end with coping strategies for each episode because we want to make sure that we're putting thing, the things that we say into action and you know that the community is truly what we care about the most. So we know about, we learned a little bit about what psychoeducation is and talked about racial trauma, the implications for that, but how can we use that and all we know about that to help us, or what things can we use rather to help us cope with some of our own personal experiences. I'm gonna pass it over to Bree to talk a little bit about cognitive restructuring. Thanks, Keisha. So, Cognitive restructuring um, is just another way that can help you in your coping. And so it's basically a way in which we evaluate the stresses that we're experiencing um, and kind of looking at how it's impacted the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world, and then also how we think about like future, so what things can happen to us. And so one example, an example for me would be a situation where Basically, I'm on a clinical team and I am the only black person on the adult clinical team in our department. And I was just in a session and usually in our sessions, people would like show the names of the team members to show like, okay, do you know this person if it's like a conflict of interest? And in that session, I realized that my name was not present. And so realizing that for me, it was like, okay, instantly my thought was, and I said it out loud, that's racist. Um, <laughs> because it's realizing that you were able to remember everyone else but me. Mind you, I'm sitting in the session as well. So it was just the fact mm. that even if I wasn't thought about, and so that's an example. Um, and so realizing that Cognitive restructuring in that framework would be around figuring out, okay, what things have happened previously that have influenced the way you thought about that situation. So like, because I've experienced moments where I've been left out in conversations or my name is forgotten, in this context, it was, my instant thought was, oh, that's racist. So realizing that previous things that have happened have informed the way that I think about things now and the thoughts I'm having. And so mommy, you can jump in about how I could restructure that racism. I was just going to say one way to look at it is to monitor is to monitor your thoughts and decide if what you're thinking is helpful to you. So a lot of the times cognitive restructuring is centered around 
evaluating the thoughts that you're having and assessing if they're helpful to you in the situation because sometimes we can get carried away with our thoughts and how our feelings influence them and it doesn't mean that what you're feeling is invalid or the thoughts that you're having should be dismissed but a lot of times those aren't helpful to us meaning that they impair our ability to function. Uh, an example would be if Bree sat at her desk literally all day and just ruminated. So yeah, it's valid that that's upsetting to you, but that sort of reaction and though that cycle of thoughts isn't helpful. Mommy, I don't know what you want to add. Yeah, so typically when we talk about cognitive restructuring in response to racial stressors, the main warning that we give is to not restructure your experience. So we would want to restructure your thoughts if your initial thought was, oh, I didn't do a good job. I wasn't contributing enough to the team and that's why they left me off, right? Because that could lead you to feel incompetent or embarrassed and right, you would then shrink. Um, I think if your initial thought is that's racist, like Letitia said, our job then is to figure out whether or not that thought is helpful or harmful and then not to restructure our experience, but to restructure our response. So if you're, if we're thinking about the cognitive behavioral triangle and your first thought is that's racist, how do you determine whether or not it's helpful? You ask yourself, okay, that's racist. How does it make me feel? If I'm feeling, well, let me ask you, you thought that's racist. How does it, how did it make you feel? Honestly, I was like, okay, like, I, I've, it's become so normalized to me now that I ultimately just be like, okay, like I've just chunked it up to racist things are going to happen. And so deciding when I'm going to put my attention into it and not. And so in that moment, I was just kind of like, okay, girl, but you wanted to email, let me not. I'm, okay. So you girl. felt right. You about to go into your, you about to go back into some thoughts. So initial thought is that's racist. How does it make me feel? Um, you would say in that case you felt um I was it it didn't I feel like it didn't stop me. Like it was just like okay. You felt indifferent, you felt Yeah. Okay. So you felt indifferent in that case and what was the behavior that made you then do what? I rolled my eyes. I was like, Y'all can't see me, but what did you do in response to the whatever it was that you were reading? Did you email? Did you have a behavioral response? No. no. So in that case, you disengaged. So when we think about reactions to racial stressors, we know that in that case, what did you choose to do? You flight. You chose to, I'm disengaging, I'm checking out. If we think about PTSD or racial trauma criteria, you avoided or you lost interest and detached from the situation, right? So now we need to figure out whether or not that is beneficial to you in a clinical psychology program as someone who wants, who has the value of contributing to your clinical team. And in this case, it's not beneficial to you to disengage from a situation if your value is to engage. So now what we're gonna do is restructure, not your thought that this is racist, Maybe not even your feeling of indifference, but certainly your behavior of disengaging. So instead of disengaging, what we do is we say, okay, what else could you do? And we know that in racist situations, we have options, right? I can go talk to them, but now they're going to say I'm angry. I can send an email, but now they're going to say, you know, I'm nagging and nitpicking, right? So we think about what is the most validating response that you can give to the situation that also is in line with your values of being engaged in a clinical team. And what might that look like for you in this instance? It could be like making a suggestion in our practical meeting and saying like, hey guys, um, let's create a list of everyone's name and share it with everybody so everybody use the same list just so people aren't left off when it comes to Having, making sure we have everybody's name on the clinical team list when we're showing it to our clients. So maybe having a, a running document. That we, so in that case, it, now we have a solution to the problem. And also mm. now Woo. I'm not having to do it. So. Ain't it crazy that we always have to come up with the solution to <laughs> racist problems, right? So yeah, you just came and you solved the problem. 
Um, but absolutely. So a behavioral response in that case is to, in the next practicum meeting, talk about a solution to the problem. What I would say as your mentor is that you have every right in the case that you your identity is invalidated in the case that you are left off of this list. I would encourage you to, like you're used to doing, letting people know, hey, you left me off this list. This is how it makes me feel. And this is what I think we could do in, in that regard. If, because I know that that gets exhausting as well, so does coming up with solutions on our own to solve the problem of racism. What I would say is find one of your white allies in the class and let them know that this happened and maybe they could take up the charge, right? Um, and that's something that you could do to protect yourself. But as, as you can see in the case of cognitive restructuring, right? We're not restructuring the fact that it's, it might be racism, right? Like, you're the only black person you got left off. So I'm not about to try to convince you that it was, oh, maybe it was because you didn't speak up enough. Or maybe they were just being thoughtless. No, no. We're going to label it as what it is. That's the psychoeducation and the normalizing of the process. But, yeah, we do want to restructure your response in some cases, right? So in some cases, if it's not, like Leticia said, if it's not harmful, then baby girl, go to bed. <laughs> if you don't care about interacting on your team, if you don't care about them folks, if you don't have to ever talk to them again, you can just unplug, talk to us, and then not worry about it, right? But if you know that you have that value, look at you nodding. If you know that you have that value of wanting to contribute to a clinical team, that's the only time that I would challenge you in terms of kind of restructuring your response. But otherwise, we need to validate each other's experiences. I know I tell you guys all the time, if you need to log off, if you need to check out, if you need to take a moment, cut your camera off, do what you got to do, right? And then I'm here to protect you, right? And that's the benefit of community in thinking about um, the stressors that we face and how they can lead to problematic outcomes. So we don't want people saying that you guys are antisocial or you're not engaged in class or you don't care, right? Um, we um, need to have each other, and you guys certainly need me, so that if these instances do come up and you're having to call people out, we're able to say, or if you're having to disengage even, we're able to say, well, you know, this is what happened, and this are, these are our reactions. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Mommy, for letting us interview you today. Thank was... you guys for being so open with your examples, because I was about to cuss and say this, SHIT ain't easy, but this ain't easy, right? <laughs> and you guys are navigating a lot. And like I said, you're continuing to do the work, both clinically, both through your research, both through your classwork, and just becoming Black PhDs. So keep pushing and keep doing what you're doing. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. See you guys in the next Bye. episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.